Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast. We're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving while preserving your values. We'll hear more about them in a little bit. This is an exciting special episode that that literally dozens of people have been <laughs> dozens dozens have been have been clamoring for for over a year. And um, it's finally happening. We have my friend and my former boss, uh, Rich Lowry of National Review, in here to talk about his new book, The Case for Nationalism, How It Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Rich, thanks for coming on. Of course. I, it's wonderful to see how this is done. And no one, at least when I've mentioned, has mentioned on air before that you drink, drink three frescas, three cans of frescas during one well, podcast. It's, it's morning, so I'm not having beer. But yeah, that's uh, I drink a lot of fresca. I I always thought Fresca was like bad Dr. Pepper. I never never tried it. My only association of it was with Caddyshack. And then about three months ago, I tried it, and now I'm, I am I love it. Um, such thing as bad Dr. Pepper, by the way. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's their second debate. And we are recording this pretty f- far in advance of release date, so we will be avoiding most of the rank punditry that I would love to ask Rich about. And I'm not even going to give him an incredibly hard time, as I have on this podcast several times before, about how he introduces the editor's podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and I listen to it every week. Through the grapevine, I've heard your complaints. Yes, well, I mean, I was I was sad when Raihan left National <laughs> Review, but... I think he left because of my introduction but, but, on the podcast. <laughs> but if it spared me having to hear you whisper, uh, yeah, it was worth it. Um and uh, one day I'm going to get you to stop saying the notorious MBD. But just try. Yeah. Just try. Can I ask you one question before we get yep. to the importance of? Yeah. Is there a point other than, or an inside joke I am missing, other than the obvious one about at the end of the editor's podcast, your no portion of this can be repeated without the express written permission of Major League Baseball thing? I just grew up hearing hearing that during every baseball broadcast, and I like saying it. That's what I figured. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right, so since we've we've gotten we've dispensed with the cosmic issues, Rich, and listeners should know, Rich and I are old friends. I'm 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 uh, delighted to have him on. We've had a disagreement about nationalism many many times. There's nothing personal about it, uh, but he's got this new book out, The Case for Nationalism. So, what's the case for nationalism? So, I make the case in the book that nationalism has a bad bad name. It's a old, natural, powerful. Phenomenon. So I make kind of the general case for it, although there are obviously more benign and malign forms of it. There can be bad forms of nationalism. But the balance of the book is making the case for American nationalism and how, as you've heard me say many, many times, we've gone back and forth uh, about this. America is not an idea. It's a nation. Uh, it's always been a nation. No one conceived of it as an idea at the beginning. They wouldn't have, it wouldn't have made sense to any of the founders if you told them that. And I spent a lot of time uh, talking about the the importance of culture and how ideas are really seeded in culture. So I, I reject kind of the received authorized version of American history that a lot of conservatives adopt, which is basically you have the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, and Martin Luther King's address to the the March on Washington, and that's American history. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's just the ideas and, and the rhetoric at that level that matter when there are all sorts of things that are extremely uh, important. Culture, land, power, sovereignty, 
and a nation is is built just on thicker associations than just an ideology or an idea. Okay. So far, for the record, I agree with all of that. So what is your actual definition of nationalism? So we've gone back and forth on this as well. There's, there's nothing we're going to bring up that we haven't like <laughs> argued about in true. person. Well, there are, a couple th- there are a couple points I want to ask you about, but we'll get to that. So patriotism, root patre, father, fatherland, is love of your own, which I think is important. Also old, natural, can't be done away with, shouldn't be done away with. Nationalism is a doctrine or idea or notion that a, a distinct people kind of defined by common uh, bonds of culture, of language – and history should be self-governing. That's nationalism at its core. And then also, rightfully, part of it should also be an appreciation for other people's ability to be self-governing. And and I argue that there are really maybe half a dozen major nationalist projects in American history that uh, have been defining and left their imprint on us. One, the revolution. It's a nationalist event. We are part of a, a liberal empire perhaps the greatest and most liberal empire ever. We could have stayed and quite comfortably become Canada, you know, which is a, a free country. But no, we're going to be back. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we're going to be independent. And our nation had its uh, its its rights and stood up for its right to be uh, you know, have an equal station with the other nations around the world. And then the Constitution was an, a nation building event. We're going to have a national government worthy of the name, then uh, conquering the continent, hugely important, uh, becoming continental nation, hugely important national uh, project where we wouldn't have been able to – the idea of America we have in the 20th century, we're, we're this idea and we're spreading this idea all over the world. You don't do it unless you become a continental nation. The Civil War, you have a perverted version of states' rights and a spurious nationalism in the South that is uh, defeated by the American nation state and that the, the legitimacy of the nation state then is is beyond question. And you have uh, finally in the 20th century, the foreign policy that is based around the idea loosely that we are going to stand up for the rights of other self-governing nations and their ability to set their own sovereign courses. So was the New Deal a nationalist project? It relied on nationalist tropes. And um, I think nationalism is obviously – it's an inchoate force and I say this in the book. It's uh, its not a Republican or a Democratic thing. It's so basic that lots of different ideologies can make an appeal to it and should make an appeal to it. I don't think the, uh, the New Deal is nationalist in the sense that uh, – you can – if you're cosmopolitan, you have to reject the New Deal. Our cosmopolitan status now love the New Deal. They love the statism rather than the nationalist appeal that, that FDR used to, to build support for it. And you know, both, but both FDR and Reagan had nationalist aspects to them, although they had a different view of the, the role of government and the efficacy of government. So what are the things – I'm just trying to flesh things out. So – you, you were influenced somewhat by Yoram Hazani, who uh, was on this podcast, and I will just say I, I wasn't particularly happy with how I conducted that because I felt like I let him get away with things that bothered me afterwards. And one of the things that you sort of seem to buy into, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is this idea that there's nothing inherently 
or specifically, you know, Hazoni rejects the idea that nationalism has anything to do with sort of military aggression, that the second nationalism becomes assertive and crosses a border, it's no longer nationalism but imperialism. Do you agree with that? Yes. But obviously, nationalism can have more militaristic forms. It's just once you are saying, you know, my nation has its own sovereign rights and it's going to trample the sovereign rights of every other nation, that becomes something else. You've bled over into something else. Okay, so before we're talking about building a liberal empire here in the United States where we wiped out X number of Indians and, and whatnot, that was still nationalism, no, right? I mean, you said it was part of our national project, but we yeah. killed a lot of people yeah. to take Look, their land. Obviously, we have all sorts of national sins, and the greatest is slavery and the fact that African Americans were part of the nation from the very beginning, and the nation state did not recognize uh, their rights, and uh, states trampled their their rights and actually you know tried to rent asunder the the nation in order to continue oppressing african americans and we treated the indians brutally there's there's uh, no doubt about it i don't see any realistic alternative though to the end state of us being a continental nation the the indian tribes would have had to be able to enforce their border against the settlement of whites and basically these pre-modern cultures would have had to be able to withstand this most powerful, commercially dynamic culture we've ever seen. And that wasn't going to happen. I wish we hadn't lied. I wish we hadn't been as brutal. And some reasonable accommodation had been met. But I'm not sure there's any example of any other society where um, – settler society where it turned out much better for – the indigenous people. Yeah, no, look, I, 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 my intent wasn't to relitigate the morality or the legitimacy of the Indian wars and all that. It was rather, uh, this gets back to the Hazoni thing, is part of my problem with the way Hazoni talks about this is that the second nationalism, the second things are done in the name of nationalism that don't fit his benign definition of nationalism, they're no longer nationalism. You say in the book somewhere about how, you know, France into the 1800s, most people didn't speak French, right? And they basically colonized, had an internal colonization of their own people. You know, Germany, you had, I don't know how many it was, 70, 100 of these princely little countries that were one by one subsumed into Prussia and then eventually Germany. That was a national project. How is that, if, if creating the nation, the sort of Westphalian nation state of France or of America or of Germany if all of these things are produced by first waging serious war against your fellow ethnics, as it were, um, in order to homogenize and have a unified culture within you know, these abstract borders, how is it that that's not a kind of imperialism? Well, I mean, at our best, we bought territory, mm-hmm. right? Well, um, let's, so, let's take, take my, my my point. I'm just trying to get the definitional thing down. I'm not talking about America yet. I'm I'm happy to pound the table in favor of America and all that. But my point is is that I am I am unaware of any nation, right? So part of my critique of the nationalism debate is that a lot of what you guys talk about is really nationism. You think that the fundamental political unit of the global order should be the nation state, not the UN or some pan-national, you know, globalist thing, which I'm entirely sympathetic with, right? I will, I will fly the flag 
and great National Review tradition for the Austro-Hungarian Empire for as long as I have breath in me. But it seems to me that, like, there is no nation-state, no serious nation-state that you can name, whether it's Israel or Germany or the United States or France, um, certainly Russia, that isn't as if, if you roll the clock backwards, is that it was imperialistic until it hit the status quo of its existing borders right now. Well, I mean, we chased out France and Spain, mm -hmm. and we took a lot of Mexican territory. Right. We can go into that. But is it, is it really imperialist to take Florida from the Spanish imperialist? And what's, what's the alternative? I mean, would you really want a country without Spain, without Texas, without free navigation of the Mississippi, without the entire, entirety of the Mountain West, without San Diego, without San Francisco, without Los Angeles? What's, and what, what do you want to give back? And what, what was, I don't want to give, I don't want to give back anything. And I'm, my point, again, my point is just a definitional one is that your, your claim seems to be that nationalism is not inherently violent or that inherently imperialistic and yet the creation of every nation state I am aware of involved often brutal violence against internal dissenters from that nation state and I mean how is it that the southerners weren't nationalists too well it was a spurious, spurious nationalism why I mean because there are no natural borders um, there is no there's no different history uh -huh. there's no different language there was slavery it was a, an unjust revolution waged uh, on behalf of a uh, repressive and sinful institution. And <clears throat> I don't know why <clears> – <throat> why wouldn't you root for the American nation state in that? And I think most of these – you know, what are we going to do? Like Napoleon, you have these nations rising up against Napoleon. You're rooting for Napoleon because you're an imperialist. You're rooting for the Soviet Union because you're an imperialist. You're rooting for the Austro-Hungarian Empire above all the, the – nations, including Hungary, that are captive to the Austrian-Hungarian empire. And I'm just not sure. I go into this a little bit in an early chapter about nationalism and racism and, and violence. If you think nations are inherently corrupted by violence, aren't empires even more corrupted by violence? Aren't city-states, you know, in, in uh, Greece corrupted by violence? I think violence, unfortunately, is endemic to the human condition. And it's not entirely coincidental that in 20th, 21st century now, when we have a norm of respecting the self-governing rights of sovereign peoples, we've had a, an era of relative peace compared to what we've seen through most of human history. You know, that's fine. I mean, I, I, part of my problem is with, with uh, the Hazoniite position, and which is simply that every time, you know, it, it seems to me that at the end of the day, the case is, is that we've reached some level of equilibrium with the nation states that we like. There are a couple places left that we haven't figured out, like the Kurds or the maybe the Palestinians. We can have that discussion if you want. But this notion that nationalism as a force isn't in its core in the in the in the creation of these nation states was sort of an imperial project among one group of a larger ethnically connected or linguistically connected people. And basically what legitimizes, you know, this – that violence is what you can get away with, right? I mean the, 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 the treatment of the various principalities by the Prussians in Germany, no one today, you know, laments the poor Saxonies or whatever. I don't know what the, all those little places were anymore. But at the time, those little places felt like they were nations. They thought they were a country and the, the 
Prussians or the Hessians or wherever it was came riding into town, whooping and a stomping, and made them give up their particularism, made them give up their customs, and join some larger national project. But to push push you on this, <clears throat> so so do you think American set, uh, British settlers should never have come to this continent because the, there are Indian wars prior to the creation of American. Nation no, state. no, no. I, look, I'm, I'm so glad why, the United. I'm very glad the United States exists. Um, well, why, I think. why not? So, so th- that colonization was caught up in violence and yeah. uh, oppressing certain people, and you know, as in the terms you put it, just uh-huh. what you could get away with. So, you must think America's corrupt then at its core. No, I don't think that at all. And I, I, my, I wasn't making a normative judgment. I was trying to make a, an analytical point. That a lot of the that 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 the Hazoni position is that he doesn't do what you're doing. At least he didn't do it on my podcast in conceding that these nationalist projects in the beginning, starting in what the late 1700s, early 1800s, involved a lot of violence in order to be that, consolidating. That would be true of the, the colonial project as well. Sure, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making a moral judgment. But about see, it. it's not about nations then. How so? Because even when there were just colonies that were part of an empire, you saw the same. Pushing the Indians aside, trying to create a common culture sure. war. I'm, I'm so happy to But um, it's just, I think that the nation, and there's just ample, vast evidence in history, the nation is the most natural unit. So, okay, so let's let's talk about that. I mean, my suspicion about the Hazoni position is is that he bends in an awful lot of Western philosophy and history through the prism of sort of the Jewish people. And says that they have this biblical right to this land, but there are a lot of different, you know, the Walloons and the Huguenots. I mean, you can go through all these different sort of sub-ethnic populations that may speak the same language, they may not. How is that the the French who were in Alsace, as a matter of nat- nature, belong in France and not in in Germany? Well, I mean, they're going to be French cases, but the the best division is language. And that's what, at the most fundamental level, unites a people. And when you, you know, Switzerland would be an uh, exception, but you look at Spain, (laughs) contemporary Spain, looking contemporary Canada just 20 years ago, almost ripped apart um, these, uh, at least Canada, I would say, is a liberal society, Spain's a democracy, ripped apart by the presence of some significant element of people who speak another language. So language is really <clears throat> at the at the core of this. And um, you look at the division of Europe, you know, in, in the ninth century, kind of along a line of Germanic and Romance languages, and it's stuck, you know, for, for a couple millennia. So, so language is really at, at the core. And it was really important, you know, the founders um, understood that this common feeling of uh, manners, history, memories, language, that that was part of the glue uh, that held the country uh, together and, and made it a nation. So are you, where do you come down on the dozens of places in Europe that want to break away because they speak different language, like the Basques or the, the Catalonians or the Welsh? I have not studied it closely. <laughs> I mean, it's, a little, it's a little, you know, it's, it's arbitrary. It's what, what is a nation... Part of it is just that you feel yourself to be a nation, and then part of it is that you you have the ability to defend your your rights as a nation. And you know, I think the the New York Times project, you know, sixteen nineteen is a r- ridiculous date for saying this is this is when the American nation started. But it, it started sometime 
between the early 17th century and um, the late 18th century. There was an American nation prior to 1776. I can't put a, a date on it for you, but it was, it was clearly there. We, we were becoming a separate uh, people. And one, one thing that I was astonished to learn, I don't know whether I mentioned it in our, our debate at the NRI Summit a while ago, but just John Winthrop, you know, here, he's here about two or three years in Massachusetts Bay, and one of the first things they do, because they took the charter uh, from England to Massachusetts Bay to, to have that kind of stamp of, of their uh, independence in their own possession, and when there are rumors the king was going to come get it, they're like, we're going to resist you by force of arms. And it's just – it's so stunning to me that 150 years before a revolution centered in Boston, large part, the South is important too, uh, against a British king, you're going to have potentially a revolt in Boston uh, against the English king. And this, this to me just goes to the, the cultural stamp uh, of this country is is so important. And it came – I have an entire chapter on uh, – uh, England and the rise of the English nation vis-a-vis King, because that's really the roots of the American nation and the you know Boston and all these places in Massachusetts. They're all named from towns in England, and the first settlers came from about twenty, thirty miles radius of one town in where Winthrop was in East Anglia, and that's just hugely important. And to me, it's it's more important than Locke. Mm-hmm. It's more important than the preamble. Of the Declaration. In fact, I would say you can excise the preamble of the Declaration, and the history of the country would almost entirely be the same. The preamble is really useful. You know, Lincoln makes great rhetorical use of it, MLK at times, but it was uh, the King's James Bible, the sense of chosenness and covenant that we got as cultural inheritance from where the first settlers came from that has had much more important stamp on the country. Well, I. I, I... I agree with a lot of that, and I violently disagree with some of it. I absolutely agree that, you know, the 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 nature of the people who made up the the thirteen colonies is hugely important. It is important. I bring up all the time from Seymour Martin Lipset, you know, just different cultural values that the the that the things that go into our Bill of Rights and our notion of of, of natural rights. And all of that, they don't begin with Locke. They kind of end with Locke. They begin in like the fourth century in England because you had these quirky, weird tribal customs that said the monarch or the sovereign or the chieftain couldn't go into someone's hut without permission. And fast forward a thousand, fifteen hundred years and you get, you know, the Fourth Amendment. You know, the whole notion of a man's home as his castle was a cultural norm way before it was any abstract notion. I agree with that entirely. I I actually make a different argument than, say, Ben Shapiro does and the one that a lot of the sort of Deninian types uh, ascribe to me. On the other hand, I'm sh- I'm a little shocked to say that you think that the history of America would have played out no diff- very little w- with very little difference without the preamble to the Constitution. Uh, declaration. I mean, declaration, sorry. More defensible if you had said Constitution. <laughs> um, uh, no, it wouldn't have been as defensible. Well, the preamble of the Constitution is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, the that's a point. more important yeah. than Declaration. But I've heard you talk about the, the Declaration before and how Abraham Lincoln used it. I read about how you talked about it in, in your book and also how Martin Luther King used it. That idea that all men are created equal seems to me it had enormous rhetorical power through our country about in terms of, in terms of as I often put it it was the it was a sort of a lodestar to appeal to the best version of ourselves the best version of the, the, we told about ourselves when when Martin Luther King says 
you know, I brought – our forefathers brought forward this promissory note and that we've come here to collect and he was playing to the guilt of Americans for being hypocrites. Without the power of that hypocrisy that that language provides, I'm not sure that the Gettysburg Address – first of all, the Gettysburg how, – how would the Gettysburg Address go, right? Um, how would uh, the March on Washington speech go? I, I'm not sure that – I think this is this is sort of my problem. I have no problem with you arguing – that America is not just an idea, but it is an idea. It's just not only, it's not merely an idea. It's also a nation, right? And that, and as you write in your book, culture matters a lot and you, and you, and culture is all about the transmission of ideas. And if there isn't a, if there's a more important piece of our culture than the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. Well, I'd say it's often a cliche that the Declaration is meant to be exported. We didn't export it to the South, the American South, until the 1960s. So um, if it has this magical power, it wasn't evident. And uh, it wasn't the Gettysburg Address that won the Civil War. It was a Union army that ground the Confederate army to dust. Mm-hmm. And the the Declaration, the preamble wasn't particularly important even at the time – we've talked about this – at the time of the revolution. It was the, the Declaration of Independence itself. That was the main right. event. And I just think there are all sorts of um, other access points in American history and culture for um, these ideals beyond the preamble of the Declaration. And the preamble of the Declaration also wasn't particularly notable at the time because it was just – it was uh, all over – American uh, oratory and argument. Yeah, there are like and, 90 different declarations or something. Right. Like and it's it a British tradition, these right. kind of declarations to the, the sovereign, these constitutional statements. And Martin Luther King, he does cite it a couple times, but the main thrust of his oratory and where it's most powerful and I think most moving is when it goes to the King James Bible. And the King King James Bible, hugely – we would not be the same country without the King James Bible. I I say it – I imagine I'll catch hell from some quarters on this. If if every uh, American settler had the Koran on their bedstand rather than the King James Bible, completely different country, Mm -hmm. not even close. Um, So Martin Luther King is running in this groove. You know, he's a preacher. Yeah. (laughs) He's running in this groove of of Protestant oratory. And we've also talked about this offline. You just just read these uh, preachers in the revolutionary period and the run up to it. It's it's Lockean without lock. Yeah. um, Because of how they read the Bible and what the Bible tells us about the inherent dignity of the individual and how important freedom is in the Bible and the free choice you make to accept or reject God. So I think all those, even if you could do the counterfactual and excise those couple sentences, all those w- would argue for us being the same. Yeah, I, I will agree with you that the the the, and I, I write about it somewhere in my book about how the the religious the the sermons which became pamphlets, right? It was like something mm-hmm. like ten percent of all pamphlets in America were re- rewritten religious sermons. Had more to do with the revolution than anything that Locke wrote. I, I was actually stunned to discover that there's very little contemporary contemporaneous attribution or crediting to Locke about the Constitution or the founding or the revolution. I think Jefferson said he's one of the three greatest people to ever live. But what what those guys and what Adams and all those guys liked about Locke was his epistemology, not his mm-hmm. not the second treatise, which which I'm happy to say is a very flawed document. Um, though I think you nationalists should like it more because it basically um, 
has no internal constraints on the national will. Um, <laughs> but we can debate that in a minute. Right, but before, before we get back to the philosophy stuff, um, so let's move it up right. to the present Are you about time. to open your third fresca here? I am, in fact, about to open <laughs> my third fresca. Um, I really appreciate you agreeing to call them frescas. And uh, so uh, um, let's talk about contemporary have, time. Have listeners thought you've opening beers every time you yeah. do? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, well, often because I am, yeah. And... Um, what are before we get to the, the to the great orange one? What are the actual public policy ramifications for your nationalism? I don't go into it in great detail. One because of the point we're making, or at least I was I was making at the beginning, that it's, it's kind of inchoate, and Elizabeth Warren can have access to it. Bernie Sanders at times has sounded nationalist notes, but I I put a real emphasis on a cultural nationalism, and I imagine on this we'll, we'll have. A very little disagreement, although maybe over the the term. But I, I think the, the the foundations of the nation are under assault. Its institutions, the Constitution, its symbols, its rights, its heroes, its memory, and all those are just essential to having a, a coherent um, nation. And identity politics is a threat uh, to the nation. And to the extent you, you wipe out these fundamentals, there are going to be other loyalties that are, are going to rise and become more prominent. And no matter how much you, you might uh, be skeptical of nationalism, these loyalties will be much worse for all of us. As you're right. As you predicted, I, there's much I agree with there. Um, I mean, this is sort of my problem. My problem is when you say that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders can have access to it and the Republicans can have access to it. It kind of reduces nationalism to a general sense of patriotism, right, and respect for our own history, our own culture. There's, there's overlap. It's, it's my nationalism, the nationalism I defend in the book is a, in sort of C.S. Lewis terms, in the mere Christianity. It's a mere nationalism, uh-huh. and uh, the the people who really don't have access to it are progressive cosmopolitans and libertarians mm-hmm. who, when you 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 know. Basically, react. Eek! There's going to be a nation state if if you have coherent nation. This is sort of I'm exaggerating, but this is kind of Kevin Williamson's reaction to to nationalism and s- certain kind of globe trotting elites who think borders don't don't matter and uh, the nation is is this primitive holdover that's inevitably going to disappear. Th- those are you know, three broad classes of people. Excuse me, who can't have access to it, but everyone else can, and I think should. Okay, hold on a second, Rich, because we got to hear from our sponsor, Donors Trust. Longtime Remnant listeners have heard of Donors Trust. Longtime Remnant listeners uh, or National Review readers uh, know where I come down on the philosophical issues of the day and on the sort of classical liberal and conservative values that inspire both of us. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's great to have a partnership and a sponsorship from Donors Trust, because it was built with many of those listeners in mind. People who think America's founding was a pretty good thing and that free markets have done an awful lot to lift people out of poverty by the billions. Now is the time to take a closer look at their donor-advised fund and see how it could benefit you. If you aren't familiar with donor-advised funds, think of it as your personal charitable savings account. It's a great tool for maximizing your charitable tax benefits while offering a simpler way to give. And Donors Trust is more than a way to give. It's a partner that cares a lot about donor intent and works with charitable givers of all sizes across the country. 
The team from Donors Trust will work with you to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. Some of you might be considering a donor-advised fund anyway. Why not partner with the fund that shares your outlook on the world? For Remnant listeners, that's Donors Trust. See why with a free prospectus. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Dingo, D-I-N-G-O. We thank Donors Trust for their support, and let's get back to uh, our argle-bargle about nationalism. So if it's just I – mean, so I'm still having trouble with the definitional part of it, right? Because uh, – so let me let – me, well, maybe we can do it this way. I, and it's going to be fairly familiar to you because we've been talking about this for a very long time. Let me make my case against nationalism. You mm-hmm. tell me where I get it wrong. Okay. okay? Um, first of all, I have never said that nationalism in and of itself is evil, right? Um, my position for years – and I remember getting just ripped by libertarians for this. I don't know, 15 years ago, I did a piece on the corner about how Thanksgiving is my favorite right. holiday and it's our most nationalist holiday, right? right? It's, it, I totally I have that in the book. Yeah. I totally agree. And it, it starts before the founding. Right. It's about our gratitude to God and to land and family and there are no gifts. It's not commercial. Um, and it's about a covenant and gratitude and all of that. And, I, and part of my argument is that a little nationalism is hugely important and valuable. But if you have too much of it, it can start ruining things and go off the rails. You know, I, I say that, you know, everything is determined by the dose and a little nationalism is, does all the things that you're talking about. It keeps, it binds the, the polity together. It gives people a sense of belonging to a nation, a sense of social solidarity and, and all the rest. But the more it, you increase the dosage, the more toxic it becomes. And when you turn it up all the way, it becomes Literally poisonous. And the problem I have as a, as a matter of, as a political program with nationalism is that when you say, when you elevate, as Donald Trump or some of his bigger supporters do, the nation as the primary focus of American politics, which is very new to American conservatism. This was not the position of, of, you know, Russell Kirk or Richard Weaver or, a lot of the founders of National Review used to have much more to talk about localism and particularism and there were concerns about standardization um, and that the New Deal imposed um, a one-size-fits-all way of thinking about the country in the name of nationalism. And the more you emphasize nationalism, nationalism historically is centralizing. It is an aid to the, the, the central government and it and when you make it a partisan issue – you end up, because of the way negative polarization and negative partisan works, you make the other party attack these basic tenets rather than see them as the sort of shared background heritage that we all have. And um, I know you don't agree with how Donald Trump portrays nationalism all of the time, but I think we've seen a good deal of that with Donald Trump as he has embraced nationalism. So have at me. Yeah, so I would say a couple things. The... the the mainstream of the American nationalist tradition runs through Hamilton, and there should be a strong – the Hamiltonian view, there should be a strong, capable state. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely correct. And if you hadn't had the Constitution, nothing would have worked. We just would have fallen apart. Our ideals would have meant nothing. In fact, they would have been discredited if it weren't for this uh, nationalist project. And although you know Jefferson's uh, very powerful, has a lot of conservative acolytes – a very powerful tradition has a lot of conservative ac- acolytes. I think it was wrong. You know, we we had to become a commercial 
Um, you Republic. say this as a UVA grad. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been a self-loathing UVA in, in that regard. But I guess Charlottesville is actually dumping Jefferson. You know, right. they, they uh, might disavow him within the next 20 years. So um, – where, where was I? Where was, oh, centralizing. So, you know, like the, the, the big nationalist uh, periods in American history, I don't, they weren't bad for localities or for communities after the War of 1812. It was a nationalist era after the Civil War. So I, I don't think having a, you know, a strong sense of, of the nation and its rights is bad for the family, is bad for localities, is necessarily bad for states even as long as they're, they're given their rightful constitutional Role, so I don't see the contradiction necessarily, and I, I take your point about nationalism and negative. Um, yeah, the New Deal was bad for localism. Pardon? The New Deal was bad for localism. Yeah, so overweening statism is bad for mm-hmm. localism. But what you say about negative partisanship, it, it would we can just say, oh, we're patriots, and it's not as toxic a, a word, but you'll you get the same reaction, mm-hmm. and and this is uh, just. I kind of we're circling around this a little bit. Hazonia's come up. You know, I'm a conservative. Mm-hmm. You know, so I. But I think rightly understood, nationalism part of the, the is a, a bow in the quiver mm-hmm. of uh, conservatism. I'm not a national conservative, as uh, w- was the watchword of of this conference. I'm not a populist nationalist. That brings in uh, other ideological threads that mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, Right. You, you still say you're, you're you're still more of a Frenchite, right? In the uh, Amari French Wars, yeah. And I don't think there's there's any. It's it's insane to me that um, to to think that some, somehow the American project wasn't liberal from the beginning. I and mean, the Constitution is a liberal document, kind of a conservative liberal document rather than a progressive liberal document. If you want to uh, get get. Uh, really mincing about the the distinctions, but I think where some of the post liberals are going, and this is where Deneen I think is more honest or forthright than than a lot of them. He rejects the Constitution. He thinks mm-hmm. the country was ill founded. They're anti federalists, or they they should be. Sorab has has uh, tweeted. I don't think he's written about this at length. About we need to recover sort of the the uh, uh, Spanish heritage <laughs> in, yeah. in America, which was totally rejected by. The founders and right. they chased it off the the continent and uh, this this is another aspect of of the revolution I think that's underappreciated. One land was really important mm-hmm. when the the British I think it was 1763 I might be wrong about the the date but that there's a proclamation uh, line of of 1763 where we couldn't settle west of that line that really pissed off. Yeah. The founders. The Quebec Act, which just said people in Quebec can practice Catholicism, basically. Huge deal, as important as the Stamp Act and other major controversies, just because the the cultural trope of our Protestant forebears was uh, you get a bishop, you get a king. Mm-hmm. And there's a rumor for a while there's a bishop controversy that the the, uh, the Anglican Church was going to send a bishop to Boston. Also, huge upset over this. So now I forget how I, I got down this this uh, road. Oh, so the, the – um, I think there's an element also the post-liberal argument that is kind of a traditional Catholic discomfort with the fact that Protestantism was so central to the country at the beginning. So just so I can get my head around some other things, I, I generally agree with that. But I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly opposed to all forms of philosophical or political monism, reducing things down to mm-hmm. a singular factor. So my problem with the nationalists is that, that – 
is that they want to reduce all political arguments to nationalism or to Trump, which is really dumb. Um, but if nationalism, as you put it, is just part of the quiver, okay. That's sort of my point about keeping it in proportion to everything else. But there are other factors involved. And around the world, I mean, let's put it this way. Is North Korea nationalist? They clearly rely on nationalism at a certain level. Russia's nationalist, right? Neo-imperialist. Okay. Okay. And, and Russia is a, a case where basically Russia was an empire before it was a, a coherent nation state and always has been kind of twisted from the – twisted and illiberal from the beginning and just, just the way – it would be really hard for us to shake the kind of liberal, small-D democratic beginnings that we had even if we try really hard and same thing with, with Russia. It was sort of set at the – at the beginning. Yeah, I have a friend who um was in a line at a bank in Russia. Oh, I shouldn't say a friend. He was actually a professor I was close with in college. And uh and the line was going really slowly and the person in front of him blamed it all on the Mongols. <laughs> Just a different you cultural might have been right. And it might invite my actually have been right. Um another great <laughs> empire for you, Jonah. So, uh all right, so another Part of my problem with, with, with the nationalism stuff is that, you know, historically, the space between nationalists and socialists is very, very small. In this is one of the points that drove a lot of people crazy when I was writing liberal fascism, is, or when I wrote liberal fascism, was that if you look at Mussolini, he was a nationalist and he was a socialist. Look at Castro. You read Castro's speeches. You could replace the word na nation, na nationalism with socialism and socialist with nationalist, and the sentences don't change their meaning. When we nationalize an industry, we socialize an industry. When you reduce the politics, when you say that the fundamental, when you say that the fundamental priority is the nation, some things can get really lost in in the switches there. And one of the things about our culture, which I think you agree with, is is that. Um, you know, yeah, the nation's important and part of our history and all of that, and we should learn about it. But the role and the power of the individual and the sovereignty of the inter individual is really important too. And that stands opposed to a lot of the nationalist rhetoric. Well, it's part of our national identity. Sure. Um, and American nationalism has not been coincident with socialism. I and again, agree, but okay, go on. Well, in the balance of my, was Hamilton a socialist? I mean, no. uh, is Lincoln a socialist? Did... Creating a nation or preserving a nation is different than nationalism once the nation is established. Woodrow Wilson, who was a nationalist and uh, definitely during the war was a socialist, and all the socialists who liked the war socialism were very upset when the Republicans came in and got rid of it. Um, FDR, you can argue whether or not he was a socialist, but the New Deal was certainly statist, and people like Arthur Schlesinger said that we were going to achieve socialism through a series of New Deals. The everybody everybody who's put real teeth behind the idea of nationalism, there has been a strong component of statism, and you could argue socialism to it. Uh, when if you took Barack Obama seriously about national unity and that basically there's the federal government and the individual and nothing in between, you know it's a kind of democratic socialism at the very least. But so what do you do with Hamilton? I say as I say, it, building a country is very different than. Is it, is it that's na that's literally nation building rather than nationalism in my mind, right? You're creating a country, and I have my disagreements. What's, what's the difference between nation building and nationalism? I mean, wouldn't want a na wouldn't a nationalist want to build the nation? And in fact, they did. I mean, George Washington and Hamilton, this was their project. Yeah, it's the difference between uh, 
building a house and constantly adding to it, you know. Um, uh, you know, statism. I mean, if we're using the word, it's statism that you oppose, not nationalism. I what I oppose is historically the amount of statism that comes from nationalist projects, like including the Great Society. Right? I mean, we're all going to lift everybody up into this unitary, wonderful Great Society. That sounds awfully nationalistic to me. I mean, it's kind of lovey-dovey nationalism, but the, the New Deal was nationalistic. Uh, the war socialism under Wilson was nationalistic and these things all consolidated power in Washington. They, they ran roughshod over individual rights to one extent or another. I mean, maybe not the great society. We could have the argument, but certainly the war socialism and the New Deal did. And, um, and you never, and you, ne- and the relationship between the states and localities and the federal government never got back into balance. And it was all done on the tide of nationalist fervor. Well, I mean, a couple things. One, I think it's a mistake just to say FDR's nationalism was the New Deal. Uh-huh. I mean, a hugely important aspect of his nationalism was World War II. Sure, sure, that's right. I mean, it's some of the most – you can lose track of the inaugural addresses because there are so many of them. But the third inaugural is a, is a, a great statement and a nationalist statement, and I don't, I don't think one that very many conservatives would read or disagree with, the D-Day prayer. Mm-hmm. Great nationalist statement. The, I mean, the, the Wilson repression during the war is terrible. Fact is, during most of our wars, there's been domestic repression, mm-hmm. uh, which is, which is a bad thing, but I don't think that's inherently nationalistic. And I think you can distinguish between nationalism and statism and federal programs that you, um, you oppose. I think you probably can too. The problem is, is that when, People in power take up the mantle of nationalism. You start to get the kind of things that I am talking about. Not always, though. Reagan wasn't the I mean, status that we're talking about. Right, we I mean, look Ir- like Irving, Reagan. Irving Crystal. Before the word was was conservatives are supposed to alert, be allergic to the word. Irving Crystal, Norman Podoritz spoke of Reagan's nationalistic sure. appeal. He just had, just as I said at the beginning, a different view. I keep on saying we. I think I get this from Andy McCarthy. As <laughs> I said at the beginning, he just had a different view of the efficacy of the the state and what was what served the interests of the nation than FDR did. Fair enough. But I, I guess I would I, also say I'm like, just struggling F- for what the limiting principle is to nationalism. It seems to everything that you know you used to you and Ramesh used to talk about benign nationalism and it always seemed to me that the benign adjective the adjective benign did a lot of the heavy lifting. And what is the limiting principle to nationalism that doesn't lead into bad things? Well I mean what's the limiting principle on anything? It's prudential judgments. Right. I mean, we should have a border that we should enforce, but we shouldn't have a uh, moat with alligators and shoot people in the legs. Right. We should have a uh, a robust foreign policy that protects our interests uh, abroad and protects our security, but we shouldn't conquer all, all the world uh, on on to try to avoid the you know one percent risk of some national security risk uh, arising from eastern Mongolia sure. or or what, whatever it is. I mean, the Constitution's so, a limiting principle, right? The, yeah, uh, liberal va- liberal values are limiting right. principles, and the, and the the Constitution was uh, adopted to create. Uh, in part, a strong and capable and limited government. And you need both of those things. And again, this is why I think Hamilton is right. We needed a national government. Jefferson was wrong. You couldn't fight wars without like a navy. This is like a really important thing. But they feared a navy. That's nationalism. Or, you know, that's not the way the terms he thought about it. But, oh, isn't this horrible? Centralizing, you know, you're going to have a a navy or standing army. Those are really important um, things. 
And I just think in the sweep of American history, the nationalists have tended to be on the right side. And the nationalists were, were the ones that, the, by the way, ended slavery and ended Jim Crow repression of blacks in the South, which was the, the last spathom uh, of the Civil War that was basically abandoned during Reconstruction and um, based on states' rights. And this is why uh, it has such a malodor uh, around it and distorts, you know, the the what should be the duly constituted constitutional role of states in our system is because it was used as a shield for enslaving and repressing people who who were a part of the nation from the beginning and part of the cultural nation, but were, weren't recognized by the nation state. So, isn't part of your I mean, tell me if this is unfair. Your argument really isn't so much for nationalism qua nationalism as American nationalism or American exceptionalism and that nationalism in other places uh, done by other cultures uh, is not necessarily so great, except for the like your basic belief in the nation state system and opposing, you know, the cookie pushers and cheesemongers of the, you know, EU or the UN. Right. So American nationalism is different and better. Than other nationalisms. Okay. Yes, that's a huge, huge part of my argument that I say up front. But two, nationalism around the world, they're better and worse forms of it, but it's a hugely important phenomenon and one that shouldn't be rejected out of hand and uh, um, and smeared as being the same thing as racism and, and militarism uh, because it's not. People want to govern themselves. And if you don't let them do it, they'll be really unhappy and uh, they'll want to get free of you and you'll have to repress them. That's why empires haven't lasted. That's why empires haven't been democracies and nation states uh, have lasted. And uh, really, it's impossible to have a democratic polity without a nation state. And one reason, you know, Africa and the Middle East have had such uh, internal turmoil and civil wars is an inf insufficient sense of nationalism in those societies, in part because different ethnicities that speak different languages were yoked together um, by colonialists. Um, all right. So we don't have a lot of time left. We have a hard out here. When Donald Trump said, I don't know, about a year ago that he was no longer a conservative, you called him the better label for him is nationalist. I did a piece in the corner saying, have fun with that nationalists because like one of the great – as I mean we, we have different judgments about some of these things. But uh, one of the great challenges for people who are actually conservatives is defending conservatism in the age of Trumpism, which mm -hmm. tends to have a distorting effect. Right. And so I was glad for him to say he's not a conservative. He's a nationalist because all of my d good friends who are nationalists, you and MBD and a bunch of these other people – it's your problem now. So uh, to close out, I mean, like, how do you defend nationalism versus what Trump calls nationalism? Or where do you see the daylight between the two? Well, I, most of what's objectionable about Trump is, in my view, populism and the persona and the temperament. It's not nationalism as such. And he obviously fails at all sorts of levels what should be kind of a, a true nationalist kind of one nation appeal. He doesn't make it. You know, people in West Baltimore are Americans. They are part of our nation. They are common citizens. We should feel a sense of common feeling with them. And certainly the president of the United States should right. say that or not suggest the opposite. So he, he is a uh, an incomplete and flawed 
nationalist. Now, when you read it on the page, the Poland speech was a great nationalist uh, statement. When you get it in front of Prompter and some of these uh, these guys write it for him, I th- I think it, it'd be hard for any reasonable conservative to disagree that that's part of uh, conservatism and should be. It's just when when he's out on his own acting in the wild, you get the problem. Do you uh, are you concerned as someone who's hoping for the long term prospects of nationalism that like, for example, uh, Mike Gall- Congressman Mike Gallagher and I are big, passionate supporters of annexing – I'm sorry, acquiring legally and peacefully uh, Greenland. Yeah. And Trump's embrace of Greenland. It's been discredited. Now. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> it's going to be a generation before you can even bring it up again. Are you worried that this cause that you believe in is going to be uh, damaged in the long run because of his embrace of it? Or do you think it's awakened an actual appeal to it? I, I worry and uh, – my worry all along has been, and I said this even in the primaries when it seemed as possible that he would go down, that we had to learn from Trump and we couldn't just snap back to what had been the status quo prior to him, even if he had just you know been a powerful challenger for the nomination and ultimately fallen short. So I still think that's true. And one hope I have is that this book will influence conservatives and Republicans that you know, if if Trump falls on his face, not to reject, not say, oh, nationalism did that, right. and not not to reject it, and understand how this is part of the mainstream of American tradition, should be part of conservatism, and and then think through. You know, I, may, I take my shot at the last three chapters. Think through what it should mean for our our uh, appeal to the public and our and our advocacy. All right. Before we stop, do uh-huh. I have time to read read one thing? Hit me. So this is. Um, I, I like this this quote from uh, – he is a future president of Harvard, unfortunately. Uh-huh. A guy named Thomas Kirkland said in, in 1798. And it just gets to, to me how – I really like this because it gets just beyond the fact that we're an abstraction or an ideal. And the, the land in this country, our tradition in this country, the fact that you know almost all of us have buried our fathers in this country or will bury our fathers is so important. So he said this in 1798. We have learned to love our country because it is our country, because we are near it and in it and have an opportunity of being useful to it, because we breathe its air and share its boundaries, because the sweat of our father's brows has subdued its soil, their blood watered its field, and their revered dust sleeps in its bosom, because it embraces our fathers and mothers, our wives and children, our brothers and sisters, because we are – because here are our altars and here are our firesides, because patriotism is the combined energy of the social affections, and he who can tear it from his heart commits sacrilege upon his nature. That's lovely. All right. So, Rich Lowry, uh, my friend, my former boss, even though you don't sign my checks anymore, I thought this went fine. Um, the book is The Case for Nationalism, How Made Us Powerful, United, and Free. Anybody who's actually interested in a uh, powerful affirmative case for nationalism that doesn't get sucked up in the whole partisan maw. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, it'll be good armor for the debates to come. And uh, Rich, always great to see you. Thanks, John.
me. Um, we can cut that out too. Um, <coughs> let's leave that one in. Yeah, let's leave that one. All right. So, uh, before I die, um, <laughs> 